Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York, its history, texture, vibe, and this other things about this amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, and the occasional mariner. On some shows, like tonight's, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, we celebrate an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in the city. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. A lot of it was focused in Brooklyn. We've looked at the history of different immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. And we've also looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored bicycles and cycling. Believe it or not, they've been here for 200 years. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. We visited the subway, public art, our greatest train stations, landmarks, and even some of our bridges. Yes, everyone, New York has amazing bridges among everything else. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Tonight, we're journeying to a neighborhood which has evolved a lot lately and which a lot of New Yorkers really don't know very well and which some New Yorkers may get confused just by hearing its name. I'm talking about Hudson Square or the new Hudson Square, which actually is the neighborhood directly west of Soho between 6th Avenue or Avenue of the Americas and the Hudson River. We have two great guests tonight. Uh, our first guest is no stranger to rediscover in New York. She's Joyce Gold. Joyce is of Joyce Gold History Tours, I might add. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history. And for over 40 years, she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through her private walking tours, as well as tours open to the public. Joyce is published. She's published two books. One is From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan. And she's also authored From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And if all this wasn't enough, the New York Times called Joyce, and this is a quote, the Doyen of New York City tour guides. It's a level of accomplishment and recognition I think any tour guide would relish. And Joyce, we welcome you back to Rediscovering New York. A hearty welcome back. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here. Um, it's been a couple of months since you've been on the show, and I know we have a varied listenership, especially uh, outside the city and even overseas. Um, just as an introduction, how did you get involved in the work that you do, bringing New York's history to life for people who were lucky enough to experience the way that you that you present and live New York's history? Well, speaking of experience, that's how it all began. I was working on Wall Street in the mid-1970s and browsing through an old bookstore, Mendoza's bookstore on Ann Street, I came upon a hundred-year-old guidebook to New York of the past. It talked about streets that I passed every day going to my office at the Federal Reserve Bank. And uh, it just changed my experience. And I noticed that other people I worked with, other people I knew in town, 
didn't know any of the things I was reading about. So I wanted to share my experience with them. And I started offering walking tours on weekends. And now it's a full-time business. Uh, Very much so. Very varied, though. Uh, and, you know, I'm uh, partial to your tours, as you and a lot of our listeners know. Hudson Square. The big Hudson people speak about now when they talk about neighborhoods is Hudson Yards. Hudson Square is different. Um, what's the difference between Hudson Square and Hudson Yards? Well, Hudson Yards was basically Michael Bloomberg's attempt to expand the Midtown shopping district and corporate district all the way to the Hudson River. It's filled with high-rise corporate headquarters and uh, living living places. But Hudson Square is much earlier in uh, its history, and it has a very different scale. It's kind of very human scale, which is unusual for New York. And some of the buildings there are um, 200 years old, very different. Uh, including the building where our second guest uh, has his business. We'll be speaking with him uh, in the second half of the program. Joyce, before we get into the history of Hudson Square, I want to ask you, you you sometimes sparingly add new tours to your roster, and the list is already enormous. I've lost (laughs) count of the number of tours that you lead. Um, Was there anything specific that inspired you to, to create a tour for Hudson Square? Well, I do more private tours than my come-to-weekend public tours, and a private tour was asked of me by the new Business Improvement District of Hudson Square. They wanted me to arrange three tours repeatedly over two days to introduce people to a very new part of town, which has been going residential lately for the first time in a century, and they wanted the public to know about it. So that's how I started on it. And some of what I found, I've been talking about for 40 years in the classes I teach at the New School University and New York University, things like Richmond Hill, which I'll be talking about today. And so it was fun for me to kind of piece together the neighborhood that some of these very important places that I long knew about uh, have existed along with a lot of new changes. So I'm always interested in the change of the city and a lot of changes happening in Hudson Square. Uh, Hudson Square, it's it's frequently called now the new Hudson Square because a lot, a lot of the new construction that's going on. But actually, um, Hudson Square, uh, part of the neighborhood was there was a Hudson Square, you know, it was two, more than 200 years old. This was, let's go back a couple hundred years when when people first started building here. It was a pretty ritzy part of town um, right around the time of the American Revolution, right afterward, wasn't it? It was. uh, People of means always in the 19th century, and even a little before that, tried to move north of where all the clattering and commerce was. And so well-to-do people, business people and others, started moving into that part of town. But of course, the most notable part, and perhaps what you're referring to, was the hill that is long gone. It was called Richmond Hill, and it was flattened at the beginning of the 19th century. Not to be confused with uh, the county of Richmond and Staten Island or Richmond Hill that's in Queens. Yes, I think all of them ultimately were named for one of the many illegitimate children of Charles II of England, if you want a little depth into the name. (laughs) 
Well, New York was named by James II uh, for his brother, the Duke of York, when they uh, seized it from the Dutch in 1664. So uh, if you're going to name uh, uh, the city after your uh, brother, why not uh, name some neighborhoods after some of his uh, children born out of wedlock? Some of the country's leaders took up residence here early on in the Republic, didn't they? Yes, that's right. Uh, It was quite a beautiful hill, was Richmond Hill. And uh, during the year and a half that New York City, Manhattan, was the federal capital of the United States. I mean, George Washington, as you know, was inaugurated on Wall Street in 1789. There was an official residence for the president, uh, somebody's house that they used for him. But uh, the vice president, John Adams and Abigail Adams, got a house at the top of Richmond Hill. And Abigail describes it as looking to one side and seeing the cow paths of Greenwich Village and looking to the other side and seeing Trinity Church on Wall Street. Wow. Actually, George Washington's house, I was reading, it's not the house is not there anymore. It's uh, it would have been right under where the with the overpass to the Brooklyn Bridges. Now, I think it was on Pearl Street. That's where Washington's residence was for the first year or so. Yeah, it was one one Cherry Street or Cherry Street. Okay, uh, it's part of my South Street Seaport tour, Ah, which actually I have been on (laughs) in a while, though. Hudson Square is architecturally diverse. We'll talk about the the commercial buildings in a bit, but but part of the district that that has houses that were built in the early part of the 19th century are really beautiful. When would we begin to see, and they're all, of course, on the grid right now, when would we begin to see the development of the grid in Hudson Square? The grid on paper comes about in 1811, but the streets start, first, it was on paper numbering the streets from 1 to 155, and since the city was pretty much built up to Houston Street, First Street is above Houston. Um, the square, Houston Square, is below Houston. So really, the only part of the grid that it includes is Sixth Avenue. Now, originally, Sixth Avenue did not go south of Bleecker Street. And it wasn't until the time of World War One that Sixth Avenue and its grid representation actually went into Hudson Square. So it was sort of protected which I think is one of the things that makes it interesting because it's not the geometry of those numbered streets and avenues, except for Sixth Avenue. Mm. Some of the city's uh, uh, best Greek revival and federal houses are actually in a little historic district that's at the edge of Hudson Square. It's called the Charlton right. King Van Dam Historic District. And it was only the city's fourth historic district. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Charlton King Van Dam is what became of Richmond Hill. Because when Adams, vice president, took over the, the hill and the house, Aaron Burr, after the capital moved out of New York, uh, he lost it to the banks because he was in debt after killing Alexander Hamilton. And Astor bought it, John Jacob Astor, the first billionaire in America, purchased it from the debtors. Uh, and uh, that's who leveled the hill. So. And- that was just about the 1820s. Where was uh, uh, the, the Richmond Hill originally? Where, where was the house? Uh, it was at the top of the Charlton King Van Dam area. Oh, it's okay. Okay. Um, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I want to finish off this segment by, by laying the groundwork choice about how um, the neighborhood has changed over several centuries. Mm-hmm. And interesting, something I didn't realize, because we, you know, you take a look 
at the the land that Trinity Church owns uh, up through Hudson Square, which we'll talk about, and certainly down in uh, in the financial district along along Trinity Place. And you think that they're uh, uh, they were always commercial landlords, but they weren't. They were residential landlords early on, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Yes, they were. And it all began with Trinity, which before the American Revolution was the official Anglican Church of New York. Everybody's taxes helped support it in in. Uh, 1705, Queen Anne of England gives it 215 acres of the western part of Manhattan that went basically from Rector Street to Christopher Street. So they were residential, but they got the uh, reputation of being slum landlords, partly because they sublet some of their property to Astor, who rented it out and made a lot of money on it. So then they got out of the residential business because that was not a reputation the church wanted. But lately, they've been getting back into mixed use, including mm. residential. Well, it was, it was really interesting to, to learn today that, uh, as I was reading up on this, that uh, there were a lot of slums in Hudson Square. And the city's Department of Health in the 1890s actually sued Trinity Church to get rid of the deplorable conditions. This must have been right after How the Other Half Lives was published. I think it, 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 it seems around the same time. And then they made the decision that they would no longer be residential landlords, but they would go into the business of developing commercial buildings. Uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours, focusing on Hudson Square and Lower Manhattan. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Innings. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. 
Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. To rediscovering New York on our episode on Hudson Square. This is episode 115. I've been doing this for almost two and a half years. I can't believe I have more than 100 uh, episodes that are all archived and you can hear us on our podcast services. My first guest is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Uh, Joyce, you're back to giving tours now as we're sort of coming out of the pandemic. Um, are there any particular tours that are available now that are open to the public in the coming weeks? Yes, months? I'm starting 11 different weekend tours at the end of this month. Uh, May 30th is the first one, the Fifth Avenue Gold Coast. But I'd be glad to send your listeners a schedule. They can just appear. They don't have to reserve. I'll always be at the starting point, wherever that starting point is. And uh, they can contact me at Joyce at Joyce Gold History Tours with an S dot com. And I'm imagining that's your web address too, JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Exactly. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, two, the the neighborhood that you probably give the most tours on is the village. Um, the northeastern part of Hudson Square abuts the village. It's right next to it. The village became really bohemian in the early 20th century. Did the same thing happen to part of Hudson Square? I don't think so. There have been a lot of different clubs and kind of advanced kind of music, different kinds of music, dance clubs. But I don't get the feeling that it was very bohemian. Uh, Tammany Hall had an outpost there. The boss were part of the Democratic Party. But that's as far as I think I can tell that. Hmm. One of the things that the neighborhood is, has really been known for, at least uh, I'm 60 years old. And, you know, when I was growing up into my uh, uh, adulthood is it was known as the center of the printing industry. You see all of these buildings along Varick Street and along Hudson Street. Um, when did Hudson Square become such a center of the printing industry? Well, I think the 1930s through the 1960s, although there's at least one major building there that still has a lot of printing company companies so that the buildings went up. In a very solid way, they could accommodate heavy printing presses. And I have a feeling it has to do with the opening of the Holland Tunnel in 1927. So very shortly after, that's when they moved in. Well, let's talk about the Holland Tunnel. Of course, it's in Hudson Square. It's, it's You can't not see it when you're coming down on Varick Street or making that right turn on Canal going up Hudson. Um, what was and is unique about the Holland Tunnel? Well, it's a national monument. It is the long. It was the first underwater tunnel to handle vehicles because vehicles, you know, exude carbon monoxide. And part of the challenge, and there were many challenges building this. Uh, one sign of how challenging is that of the three designers, the first two died in the process, basically of exhaustion. And uh, it is today the longest underwater vehicle tunnel in the world. A lot of inventions, especially having to do with um, with uh, air quality, came about because of it. 
Uh, and I, I I heard that when it was opened, um, it had been called by some people as the eighth wonder of the world, which actually I suppose the Empire State Building took away from it when it went up in 1930 or 31. Um, but, you know, one of the things that was also interesting, you know, we don't we we take this for granted is before the Holland Tunnel, the only way that you could get a truck or a car into New York was via ferry. You just couldn't drive over a bridge or through a tunnel. There was no there was nothing for vehicular traffic until the Holland Tunnel opened. True. How did it get its name? People wonder. <laughs> I wonder sometimes. I know the answer now, but I, you know, I, I used to wonder it once upon a time. Well, it has nothing to do with the country. It has to do with the first engineer whose name was Clifford Holland. And um, he worked on it for a few years. I think it was in 1919 that he was called up to do it. But uh, I understand that he died basically of exhaustion in Battle Creek Sanitarium in uh, Michigan, just before the two ends of the tunnel met in the middle under the river. And then, uh, so they decided, it wasn't going to be called that, but that's when they decided to name it for him. The man who took over, the engineer who took over, was a guy named Friedman. And now there are two parks on either side of the tunnel entrance named for him. He also died within half a year of Holland's death, basically of exhaustion. So these people didn't die of accidents, but just of the pressure. Uh, I mean, pressure works in a lot of different ways with the tunnel water pressure, but this was emotional pressure. And it was the third engineer, a guy named Ole Singstead, who completed it. Mm. What effect did the tunnel have on the neighborhood when it opened? Well, it had a very big effect because a lot of uh, property had to be removed. And I was I have a book from 1927 that I was looking at today called, interestingly enough, The Eighth Wonder of the World, The Eighth Wonder, it was called, uh, very of the moment. And it talked about some of the decisions, for example, to not over complicate traffic patterns they made the entrance and the exit of the tunnel several blocks blocks apart. So both of those areas had to be removed from uh, of all the buildings that were on them. So there was a huge amount of construction going on. They probably got them through eminent domain. Um, let's take a little detour away from uh, industry and commercialism and go to education. Um, Let's talk about the Elizabeth Irwin High School. Who was Elizabeth Irwin? Well, she was a very interesting educational uh, person. She taught in the public school system, but didn't teach the way the administration wanted her to teach. She thought children learn better by doing rather than just hearing about hearing about lectures. She took them all. She was the first person, apparently, to take them on trips (coughs) to different industries and around the city. And um, she gave them psychological tests to know exactly who the children were. And uh, she thought the children would learn to read and write eventually, but that the projects were what intrigued them. (coughs) So she was quite an innovator in educational ways that many people find quite standard today. So uh, when the school fired her, some of the parents so liked what she did that they arranged to have her have a private school and Little Red Schoolhouse, kind of a deceptively old-fashioned, cozy name they gave it, uh, has been around since 1921. Irwin was considered radical in her day. She was also openly lesbian. And for uh, someone to be openly gay in the 20s and the 30s was, you know, was 
and and in and in education, that was a uh, uh, really monumental. Not in Greenwich uh, Village. There were quite a lot of lesbian couples. Uh, she was spent thirty years with Catherine Anthony, uh, a feminist biographer, among other things. Did she continue in education after they fired her? Oh yeah, she continued being the head of the private school. Okay, got it. Called Little Red Schoolhouse, mm-hmm. and then they also decided to have a high school which is the one in Hudson Square, a few blocks from the lower school today. And uh, Angela Davis was invited to be a student at the high school, Little Red Schoolhouse. That was obviously before her more notorious days. (laughs) Well, no, I'm not sure of that. Uh, (laughs) It was definitely before she was carried from the Jefferson Market Courthouse to California and extradited for a crime. Um, Well, let's talk about Hudson Square Nowadays, in the 21st century, what Uh, kinds of businesses and organizations have been locating there? Well, big changes. A lot of tech innovators, a lot of startups, architects have been moving in. And one huge square block is currently being built on and demolished and then built on as the new headquarters in New York for Disney. And Disney includes ABC Studios. So they're moving down from West 66th Street and uh, it's part of the media influence in the neighborhood these days. And a lot of uh, the Trinity's feeling now is that they want a mixed uh, neighborhood. So they want people, innovative people to live there. And they want cafes and things for residents as well as commercial businesses. Our most recent former president has some development history in Hudson Square. <laughs> Um, he built something on a on a on an important historical site. Yes, I love I love the understory, and the understory was that in the early part of the 20th century, Spring Street Presbyterian was very innovative for its day. It was in the 1820s, at a time when slavery was still legal in the state of New York. They had an integrated church. There were uh, blacks and whites, and they had a graveyard in the basement. Uh, So there were quite a few graves buried down there, uh, blacks and whites. And when Trump decided to be this, uh, decided to build the hotel, he modestly called Trump Soho. It's not in Soho, but he liked the name, and he certainly likes his name on everything. Well, it wouldn't be the first time he said something that wasn't true, but. Um, they uh, knew that these graves were there, very historical graves and, uh, you know, sacred to many, but they were all moved. They were actually moved to Syracuse University and analyzed, and now they repose in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Mm. But uh, when he started running for president, a lot of people didn't like that, didn't like him, and they changed the name. His company sold the building, and they changed the name to the Dominic. So that's now the name of the hotel. There were and still are some interesting entertainment places in Hudson Square. Which ones? There was something called the Culture Club, which was a dance club. A lot of dance clubs in the neighborhood. There were a lot of entertainment and kind of activity uh, places there. And uh, a lot of dance clubs were really where people went to talk and dance a little. But this was strictly about dance. There's SOB, still going strong, stands for Sounds of Brazil. And uh, that was Afro-Latin 
music. Celia Cruz performed, Tito Puente performed, and a lot of very advanced kind of entertainers, Madonna and others, uh, were, were uh, in the audience. So those are some of the main ones. And we also have a couple of museums in this part of town, too. Yes, one really wonderful one, uh, too little visited, is the fire museum. It's, it's in an old firehouse, and it's uh, about the history of New York's incredible fire department, which has been a city agency since 1865, but was kind of privately won before that. Uh, so that's one of them. And another one is the Jackie Robinson Museum, that when he died... In the 1970s, Jackie Robinson, of course, integrated Major League Baseball, uh, joining the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Uh, soon after he died, his family and others decided that his uh, his influence was very important. He was also very much an activist uh, for integration and uh, Black people's rights. And so this is closed currently for covid but it's going to be opened again, something wonderful to visit on right on Canal Street with lectures and talks and all kinds of interesting things. Mm. Uh, and our engineer, just Sam Leibowitz, just reminded me uh, that we have to mention the Film Forum, which, uh, oh, yes. is, uh, which is you know opened again, I believe. And uh, It is, yes. It has opened again. And uh, it's run by a woman who uh, graduated from Smith College, which uh, I have a connection with indirectly. And um, they have four screens, I believe. It started as a kind of an indie film place, and it's wonderful. Mm. Joyce, we're almost out of time, but uh, there is one building I want to talk about uh, briefly because our next guest uh, has some more recent history there, and that's the James Brown House. Mm. It's where the Ear Inn is. What's so special about the Ear Inn? Well, the Ear Inn, to me, harkens back to early Greenwich Village days when uh, there was a real feeling of creativity and interestingness about the place. It's interesting because of why it's called the Ear Inn, which I think your next guest will be talking about uh, also. And it's interesting to me because although now it's three blocks from the Hudson River, it used to be right next to the Hudson River and everything else since 1817 has been filled in with landfill. So the idea of the change is very visible. And the thing I love about the Ear Inn is that outside on the facade, they even tell you this is where the Hudson River used to be. So they incorporate history into their own presentation. And of course, James Brown, uh, African-American associate of George Washington is also very interesting. Mm. All right. Well, Joyce, thank you so much, as always. Illuminating and fascinating to have you as a guest on Rediscovering New York. Our first guest has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold's History Tours. You can find out about her tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Uh, stick around. Uh, speaking of the Ear Inn, we're going to have one of the co-owners and uh, someone who also has uh, quite a maritime history uh, that probably took place just blocks from where his business is. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. 
Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give Chris a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property, including in Hudson Square. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is Captain Richard Perry Heyman, also known as Captain Rip. Aside from being the co-owner of the Ear Inn, Captain Rip is a U.S. Coast Guard licensed master mariner. He came to New York to attend Columbia University in 1973, and his education includes the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy right here in Kings Point on Long Island Sound. 
He's a maritime lecturer for, among other organizations, Cunard, Regent, Seaboard, and Silver Sea Cruises. Captain Rip is also captain for training at the Great Hudson Sailing Center. He's authored a U.S. Coastal Harbor Guide. Among his published works, he's the editor of Odyssey Illustrated Maps for the Yangtze River in China. He's been the president of the Hudson Valley Line, a project for daily river line service between New York City and Albany from 1997 to 2001. And for me, one of his most fascinating engagements was as a journalist about aboard the Hanseatic. It retraced Ernest Shackleton's expedition to Antarctica, which took place more than 100 years ago. Captain Heyman is married to Barbara Pollitt. They have two sons. And as the captain likes to say, they're now off into the world. Sort of what you'd expect from a marriage. Captain Rip Heyman, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Rawr. Is it safe? Is it safe to uh, be online yet? I think it okay. is. And I, I love your mask. It looks like Puff the Magic Dragon. Well, it's, uh, you know, it's from Australia where, you know, even the crocodiles wear a mask. Oh, Actually, they're pretty. Uh, I've I've been down under three times. It's uh, the crocs. They were pretty fierce. Uh, want to get? Don't want to meet one. That's uh, why you got to know how to run on land. Hmm. But anyway, it's nice to be with you, Jeff, and uh, honored to be with uh, Joyce Gold and her wealth of knowledge about our little village along the side of the other villages. Uh, well, I really appreciate you being on the show, um, Captain Rip. I like to ask all of my guests. Um, are you originally from New York? Uh, no, I was born in New Mexico uh, in a nomadic military family, so I moved all over the country and the world. But I came to New York uh, uh, as a uh, raw student to go to college. And boy, did I get an education. <laughs> and, uh, and here you stayed. Um, <laughs> before we get to the year in, um, your professional life story is so fascinating. I have to ask you about your maritime engagements. When did you decide, before you became co-owner of the era, and when did you decide that the sea would be the place for you, that it would be your calling? Uh, well, since I was born in New Mexico, I you know came, came to consciousness and I said, wow, what a great beach. Where's the surf? <laughs> and so I ended up in New York and then I've been a private and a uh, professional sailor ever since, just because I, uh, mm-hmm. I find... Uh, the sea to be more, um, um, let's say, spacious than the land, especially in this neighborhood. And so I ended up on the end of Spring Street and uh, homesteaded there since I was in college. So I'm still working on my my my, uh, my education there. <laughs> Otherwise, it, it goes on uh, the Ear University, also known Ear as the University, <laughs> the James Brown School of uh, School of Business. Um, you know, Captain Rep, I could ask you questions for a whole hour about, about your maritime experience, but we can't do it on the show because we're supposed to be focusing on Hudson Square, um, the neighborhood where your business is. Um, but let, let's indulge my curiosities and probably those of some of our listeners for a couple of more minutes. Um, what was the Hudson Valley line and how did you get involved with it? And it's a little relevant to our discussion because the ear in is just blocks away from the Hudson. Um, and in fact, when the building was built, it pretty much was was on the river. Well, yes, I ended up uh, living living on the uh, the the old wooden beach house that is the ear in James Brown House, which used to be right on the beach when they filled it in. And so I would to this day, you can look out and see the boats going by on the Hudson, though. The, the Hudson is about half as wide as it was before the uh, the invasion of the humans and uh, landfill and Holland Tunnel, all that development, which is 
modern fantastical, I'd call it. Um, but uh, the year in James Brown House has settled in. It was built right next to the docks. And so it was always busy as a landing and a goods coming in. There used to be a food market right now out in front of it. That's why the street is so wide right there between Greenwich and Washington Street on Spring Street. We have the widest sidewalk because it was the major food market in the early 1800s. And the building itself was built maybe by 1800. The date of 1817 is the date when the city of New York and its kindness appropriated the neighborhood, including Greenwich Village, to be part of New York City. Not that there was any referendum or any public say in it, but then the town kept growing in the year, rather the James Brown House, which was one of these, like Joyce said, an uptown, fancy neighborhood out of the squalor down by downtown back then below wall street all and uh, then the neighborhood changed and it became a dilapidated uh, residence and then a but the pub has kept it alive for uh, originally it was a brewery before that it was a pharmacy and before that it was a tobacco shop now it is a we call it a resocialization center well, James Brown was was actually a tobacco merchant, among other, other things that he did. The, the registry of the city in 1817, when they uh, appropriated the neighborhood, uh, listed James Brown and tobacconist. Though we have for years looked for the actual documentation of them, but there were many James and many Browns and probably maybe have no written record. And the uh, legend that was kept getting passed down that he was an an African-American aide to George Washington as painted in the Crossing the Delaware portrait is pretty, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, fabulous in the sense that it's dramatic, but we have no evidence of his early ancestry. And that painting was painted in the 1850s with models posing at the studio in Germany. And it wasn't actually, he was going the wrong way in the painting. (laughs) But anyway, James Brown, we've researched this with the Schoenberg Center, Harlem, and other Revolutionary War uh, scholars, and we've done archaeology and found all kinds of things that are now on display at the um, New York Historical Society. Because when the, uh, after Sandy and other excavations and the construction of the glass house next door on Spring Street, we dug down and found all kinds of things that were of great interest to the archaeologists because the combined city collection of about 50,000 artifacts with their documentation from all the museums and the private uh, collections were safely stored in the basement of the World Trade Center. And one day it all went to dust. And so therefore we donated our buckets and buckets of stuff from the dig at the year end up to the museum that goes back to Dutch times and Chinese ware and wild animal bones and things that we found in the basement of the year in. So it goes back in the history, like Joyce said, but um, fortunately we haven't outlived ourselves yet. And it's open tonight for lunch and dinner, but uh, lunch before dinner. We're going to take a break in a moment, but I, I want to ask you, how did, how did it come up with the name The Ear In? And the neon sign on front says The Ear In. It's kind of a, a creative name. How did you come by it? Well, it was only creative by default, which is... Okay, because uh, the bar sign, B-A-R, was put on probably in the 30s or 40s when the pub was allowed to be legal again. It it stayed serving um, all through Prohibition, but the sign dates from pre-landmark designation, and the Landmarks Commission 
legally cannot say take it off, and but they would not allow any new sign or any addition. So we asked them if we could do any subtraction. So we they they had nothing in their lengthy code about that. So we painted out the ends of the of the B and made it E. And at the time, we also had our ear magazine being published upstairs, which was a musician's journal. So for us, it was okay. But you know, there's a in that train of uh, commercial development, we could change the name again to the Far Bar or the Eep Bar, or all kinds of names could be had if we <laughs> keep painting out the neon. So we we're open to suggestions just to renew our image. Maybe you should have a contest night and uh, you know uh, let people chug and uh, come up with uh, creative names. Oh. Um, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with Captain Rip Heyman, one of the co-owners of the Erin on Spring Street in Hudson Square. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. And you're back to Rediscovering New York on our episode on Hudson Square. My second guest is Mariner, writer and co-owner of the Ear Inn in Hudson Square, Captain Rip Heyman. Captain Rip, I want to ask you one more seafaring question. Uh, I want to ask you about your work on the Hanseatic, retracing Shackleton's expedition. You know, he wasn't the first to go to uh, Antarctica. Amundsen and Scott preceded him. One survived and one didn't. What was it about Shackleton or his expedition that fascinated you and had you want to participate in, in the recreation of it? Well, that particular expedition in the age of uh, grand folly, let's say, going down there without the right resources or knowledge into the unknown, uh, he 
had his 27 crew members and they were shipwrecked in in the uh, closed in on the ice in the Weddell Sea and the ship the ship was crushed and they offloaded on land and then they hauled it all to an island and they finally got their boat and they sailed away to South Georgia Island. So over over a year they were unknown, stranded and considered lost until by the discipline that Shackleton and camaraderie made with his men, there were no women there. Uh, they were able to survive. They didn't lose anyone. So it became more of a lesson in leadership. There's no great scientific discovery or any goal of it other than the uh, human condition that you can survive incredible circumstances and with the right attitude, you may actually survive. And so therefore Shackleton has been a, a model for much of the leadership training around the world. So there's a school in England named after him for the encouragement of those kind of you know qualities mm -hmm. that he had. And it's a and testament. On, uh, sorry, I went on a German ship to retrace the voyage. We got caught in the same uh, ice in the same place, so we saw the the places where they actually survived. And of course, we we steamed off, so we were not endangered. But this is a remarkable venture that's now historical. And it's a testament to Shackleton's leadership that they all actually survived and made it back, um, minus a couple of toes on one of them, but uh, they did. Um, Captain Rip. How does a ship captain who's done so much on the sea and written and lectured, how does he end up owning a tavern in Lower Manhattan? Um, and then one that wasn't in the center of street life either. It's not like in the middle of Stone Street or it's like, you know, it's on the outskirts. How did how did you and your partner, Martin Sheridan, come by come by owning it? Oh, I would say we were uh, young and foolish, uh, but neither those today. Well, maybe we, but we were in the neighborhood and we were both uh, involved in uh, he had he was a music pr producer at a studio. I also had a studio upstairs at the year and before the pub you know, turned from a long longshoreman's sailor's bar into the, the uh, kind of a musical place it is today. And uh, so we, we were I knew him from. Uh, the neighborhood back when almost nobody else was around there and the ear in back then just known as bar uh, was only open six in the morning till noon, Monday through Friday for the dock workers and the sailors and the other professionals who came in, uh, you know, the bookie and the, the hiring boss and the, you know, you know, the guy hitting you over the head for your, for your debt. And we weren't allowed living upstairs. Yeah. It was a very professional place. And so during the pandemic, we were thinking, Wow, what are we going to do? Uh, maybe we should bring back the pool table, the strong house. There used to be an iron room in the back dining room, which held the safe and the money and the guns because there was a lot of trouble and it was so dangerous in the neighborhood. My, uh, let's say, friends from afar, I would always make escort them around at least to Sixth Avenue so they would be safely home after dark. And that whole this whole neighborhood was like I said, one of the the the, the promise was the Westies versus the 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 Easties or something, or, <laughs> and they were, you know, running. You're saying the only time I've ever been ducked for fire, I've been in many war zones and many faraway places, but the first time I ever hit the pavement was some gunfight on Washington Street back in the bad old days. Mm -hmm. Now it's just between, you know, Google and Disney, and I hope they don't have a real war. <laughs> when did you buy the bar? It was in the 70s, wasn't it? Well, we were renting from the bar, you know, $100 uh, a month to live upstairs without heat or uh, plumbing. Uh, but that was okay. You know, I said I'd fix the roof if I could live up here. And that's still the deal. I still have the apartment upstairs with roommates and 
visitors. And then the pub was sort of abandoned. And uh, we ended up, my, my roommate, Shari Deans, who at the age of 79, the, the, the uh, yet-to-be-famous artist Shari Deans, went down because she was Hungarian. She talked to the Hungarian owner and made a deal and bought the bar. And then, you know, in her elder years from their 80s, she was the queen of the bar until Martin Sheridan and his family and friends, uh, uh, you know, took it over and have run it the, the same way until today. But um, you know, without uh, Shari Deans, we wouldn't be there because the building probably would have been, become a parking lot. and hmm. But she brought in a whole new generation of Back in those days, this, the building across the street, the Port Authority building, was given over to artist studios and also the Feminist Art Institute. So in one year, this funky old sailor's bar went from all grumpy old guys, open only in the morning, to, to a women's artist hangout all night long. We had to force them out you know, just to keep the, the license because they, they wanted to stay all night. So... <clears throat> Ever since then, the neighborhood has continued to change and have all kinds of new people. Now we have you know, all these residences. We were way out and sort of beyond Montana for quite a while with <laughs> no many, not many neighbors. A few little houses on Canal Street and Greenwich Street. But now we have this glass palaces everywhere and more coming. Do you, are the people who come to the era now, are they kind of transient or do you get to know a lot of them? And do they come back over and over again? Once, once they hear... Uh... You're stick that they decide I ain't coming back here again. <laughs> I'm done with it. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this is a sort of obviously uh, I'm joking. Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying uh, no, the conversation. We, we, yeah. we always have to have uh, friends come and go. We we find we have many uh, uh, low friends in high places these days because we've been protected from the problems of reconstruction and demolition. And uh, currently, the city a couple of years ago condemned our sidewalk benches, bollards, and trees as illegal trees, and they want us to clear the whole sidewalk. And then the pandemic happened. Now we have our, our little yeah. cabana outhouse on the street, and we can serve on the street. So suddenly the place is yeah. back to life. But now in the pandemic time, we are getting to see our neighbors. There are no tourists around, and there's the business community is somewhere at home online. And so it, we've, we've actually been able to see some of our oldest neighbors come out of their cave and get, gather yeah. together along with all the often uh, young families and children running around. Well, Captain Rip, we have about a minute left. Um, I want to ask you one more question. Is there anything that you wish was in your part of Hudson Square, business or otherwise, that's not there now? Maybe give someone an idea to uh, homestead or pioneer or uh, set something up? Uh, well, one of our requests of the immediate blocks and our immediate neighbors was when the sanitation department built their billion-dollar garage, for the uh, care of our kind sanitation uh, workers and trucks that they build a walkway. So you, all the many people who come walking down spring street and in the neighborhood can cross over to pier 40. And we said, if you just put a bridge over, then you can walk from, you know, however you configure it. We, you know, the biggest problem is getting across the mad West side highway. Yeah. You know, when I moved in there, there was the elevated West Side Highway, and underneath at the end of Spring Street was a one of the larger permanent homeless centers uh, uh, in New York. Because under the highway, they had uh, fifty-gallon barrels of burning wood to keep warm, and they were all camping in their piles. But now it's you can't cross the street. Before you could cross the street if you could get through the mm -hmm. the homeless camp. 
to the dilapidated piers. Now we have this beautiful park, but you know, for a lot of people, it's pretty daunting crossing eight lanes of traffic. It's like living in L.A. without an overpass. That's right. right. Well, we are out of time. Um, Captain Rip, thank you so much for being on the show today. My second guest. (laughs) My second guest for our show on Hudson Square has been Captain Rip Heyman, co-owner of the Ear Inn on Spring Street. I recommend it. Uh, If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get in our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris-Stevenson, New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the great Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. you listeners looking to boost your business why not advertise on talk radio nyc with very reasonable rates interested simply send us a message on our website talkradio.nyc do you love or are you intrigued about new york city and its neighborhoods i'm jeff goodman host of rediscovering new york a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history. 
its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.